0: You know, there are certain people that strike you as gracious. Uh, You're comfortable around them. They're helpful. They're generous. Uh, You can relax, be yourself. You, uh, You like them instinctively because you sense that they like you. They're gracious. Jonah was not one of those people at least as we meet him in Jonah chapter 4 that's not what he was like and today we want us to we want to think about what was going on inside of Jonah that he had the attitude the resentment that he had and how are we like him how can we prevent that a uh, seed of gracelessness in our own hearts. As we come to the end of uh, our study of Jonah today, it's interesting because it doesn't really seem to wrap up with any kind of you know, crescendo or ending or this is, this is what I'm teaching you. It, it just kind of quits. The story just ends. And we're kind of left a little bit empty. The only hero in the book of Jonah... Is God, which he always is. But Jonah could have been a champion of God's grace. Except in these pages, he was not. He had one glaring flaw. While he preached truth, he did not have grace. And yet this is a book about grace. It's a book about God's compassion for the world. And so uh, God showed grace to Jonah by rescuing him as he's in the bottom of the sea. He showed grace to him by giving him a second chance to serve him. He showed grace by bringing the warning to the people of Nineveh before the the, the destruction that he promised. And then God showed compassion by sparing them. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. If the book had ended here, Jonah was an amazing success, we would think. But then we have Jonah's response to God's amazing grace. We looked at this in our last study, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry that God showed grace. That is, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) So he is really ticked off that God spared the very people he was sent to. To preach to and uh, God in response to Jonah's anger now puts the finger on that attitude as we pick it up in verse 4 but the Lord replied have you any right to be angry anger is probably our most common uh, human emotion negative human emotion many things anger us I think it's a really important question to ask this question just broadly about anything. What makes us angry? If you want insight into yourself, ask yourself, what makes me angry? And, and then think below the surface, because this is what God's going to be addressing in Jonah. What is making you angry? So the main point of the book, really, is God's compassion for the world. Chapter 3, by, the, by that time, God's accomplished that purpose of showing his compassion for the world. So why is there a chapter 4 at all? God's glorified his grace triumphs. Why tell us about this, this anger issue? I'm really convinced it's, it's the vital application of the book. Because God is glorified not only by showing grace, but by his people imitating the way he shows grace. So this is where it gets down to us. Yes, it starts chapters 1 through 3 for us understanding that God shows grace outside of our expectations, beyond Israel. He cared for the pagan Ninevites. But Jonah, how about you? Are you going to imitate me? Because that's what really glorifies God is when we imitate his grace. Do you have a right to be angry that I showed grace? There is no answer. There's no good answer. And so Jonah does what a pouting child does and he just kind of storms off without answering the insightful, penetrating question. Verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen To the city. He surely arrived at Nineveh Nineveh from the west, coming from Israel and the Mediterranean Sea, where he had uh, spent a couple days. Then he goes to the east. Why? He wants to see what will happen to the city. Evidently, Jonah left the city before the 40 day warning had expired. And he's thinking, I want a front row seat to the show. Expecting God to destroy the city of Nineveh, but then for obvious reasons that we've already read, God cancels the show. God is that gracious parent who, after giving a child a warning, is delighted that the child responds to the warning. And does, the parent does not have to bring the discipline. There's a very distinct difference between wanting to give that discipline with a parental sense of almost revenge (laughs) and delighting to be able to withhold the discipline because the child responded. That's God. Jonah is the opposite of grace. He wants them to pay. And for one basic underlying reason, He hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians, as a race and as an empire, were a threat to Israel. Not the king of Nineveh specifically, that's a a local part of Assyria. But the Assyrian empire was a threat to Israel, and for that reason, Jonah hated them. That's why he was angry. He wanted them to suffer. And so he ignored God's question, because he knew that any way he said it would not sound very good to God. At least, it left him miserable. There is nothing more uh, miserable than fully knowing God's will and being fiercely opposed to it. Just You can feel that tension, right? When When you just plain disagree with God. Maybe the most amazing piece of grace in the book of Jonah is the fact that not that he didn't destroy nineveh but that he didn't destroy jonah at this point maybe his grace shines the brightest because he is patiently working in jonah his man his servant to transform his heart to be like god's and so he he god god creates a scenario with some very tangible literal events, in which Jonah is forced to deal with his, his attitude, his, his position, his, his settled attitude towards Assyrians. Verse 6, then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. It's all good, right? And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. See the repetition of his attitude and mood. Jonah's in no mood to deal with this question of his anger, but God will not be ignored, and so he creates this event to make force Jonah to deal with his heart. Do you ever notice that when there's an issue that God wants us to face, it seems almost like there is a an abundance of circumstances that keep pointing us to that issue. God is so persistent in his effort to transform us and make us face the core issues of our heart. So Jonah builds a shelter. Uh, The shelter is probably something very primitive and temporary, made out of a few branches with leaves that quickly dry, building what is essentially in in the uh, Jewish culture a booth. If you've heard of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament, it was the October Major Feast. Leviticus 23 describes that what they should do is they should build these temporary shelters and basically camp in them for some seven days, one week, to remind them of their ancestors' temporary housing as they endured the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings, moving, moving, camping, and so forth. And so, they, you physically, literally, get into this booth and experience some of that to be able to appreciate then and celebrate that God brought you into the promised land, into permanent homes and, and lush valleys and grain and and grapes. and So it was a, it was a very joyous celebration, but they, they wanted to, God wanted them to act this out. So Jonah knew about those booths But he went there with a very different spirit. He went there with a a vengeful heart, hoping God would destroy them. God kind of leads them along here. You notice the three times that that text says, God provided, God provided, God provided. Number one, he provided a vine. Uh, Nineveh is uh, in Iraq. Iraq gets very hot. And uh, so... He builds a shelter that is barely protective. What a blessing it was that then God provided this miraculous, lush, green vine, like instantly, to ease his discomfort. How lucky I am. It's the only time in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, you find Jonah happy. Then, God provided a worm. And after one day of enjoyment, Jonah watches his... Fortuitous, lush vine just disappear, shrivel up in the desert dryness. Provided a vine, provided a worm, then he provided what? A scorching east wind. Now the shade was gone, and Jonah is sweltering in the sun, and it's it's miserable. Jonah is probably about 12 miles east of Nineveh. If you look at the topography of the land, he is, uh, there's a hill outside of Mosul, Iraq, at that direction. There's a shrine there now, but it's 12, 12 miles is safe enough, I think Jonah thought, to uh, watch the destruction and not get hurt, but yet gave him a good viewing angle. He was kind of setting himself up for this weird backwards pleasure of seeing God do that. But now, instead of experiencing that joy, he is experiencing sweltering heat. How does heat affect your mood? It doesn't make it better, does it? I assume that most of us that live here in Wisconsin are here by choice. Um, I like Wisconsin summers. We endure the winter, don't we? Because we we enjoy the summers. I I just I like the warmish summers where you know. Somewhere it gets a little bit on the hot side, and especially if you live here in Port, then you, you get the natural Lake Michigan AC that gets turned on around 4 p.m. and kind of get that lake breeze. And you put a jacket on, you sit around outside and you're okay. And there's other parts of the world that aren't quite that way. We have a, we have a daughter and, and son-in-law and a granddaughter in Phoenix that we love. <laughs> but unless they have a baby in the summer, we're never going there in June, July, <laughs> and August. And so heat is something that is just, for for us at least, we we just don't like it. And I can only imagine what it's like to be in the open sun in Iraq at about 115 degrees. Your, 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 Your branches have already lost their leaves and the worm has made your precious vine disappear because God provided the vine... Then he provided the worm. Then he provided the wind. It's almost like God plays a trick on him and says, here, I can give you relief from the heat. Oops, I can take it away from you as well. Now, God is not being mean. God is being gracious because he knows that he needs Jonah's full attention to transform his heart. And it's like any discipline. I mean, no dessert for you tonight young lady, because, you know, whatever it is, and it's to get attention to draw to draw them to a better place. There's another interesting term in the text where it says that uh, in verse uh, 6 that the shade was to ease his discomfort. Uh, you may have the word misery or grief. Uh, it's technically the Hebrew word evil. So give shade to ease the evil of this hot sun. It's the same term for evil back in 3 verse 10, where it says God did not bring upon them the destruction. It's just a simple word, evil. Seems like a word, word play where God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, you wanted me to bring evil upon the Ninevites. Let me give you just a little taste of evil the pain you wanted for them, let's just let you experience that a little bit. And so when a scorching wind came and the sun blazed on his head, he says, I want to die. It would be better for me to die than to live. The only time that phrase is used in the Old Testament besides this was another prophet under a tree. Who's that? Elijah, yeah. Elijah under the broom tree. But maybe we're supposed to deliberately think of that because... um, But when when Elijah was under the tree, you know, we have a little bit of sympathy for him. Jezebel's really trying to kill him. By comparison, we have very little sympathy for Jonah. No one was trying to kill him. He wanted everybody else to die. And so God brings this all to bear. Say, Jonah, I want you to face a spiritual problem, and so I'm going to allow a physical problem to bring your attention to what's going on inside of you. Then God repeats the question, verse 9. Do you have a right to be angry? But he adds something. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? The first time Jonah asked the question, do you have a right to be angry? The issue was angry about the grace that I showed, right? Jonah, Jonah's not going there. And so it's like... Uh, God says, let me, let me test you with something external. Because I'm trying to get to an internal issue. So Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And this time, Jonah blurts out an answer. I do, he says. I am angry enough to die. Have you ever noticed that when you're angry, it's often about external things that happen. A little Circumstance. Someone broke a dish. The dog, whatever, so you kick him, and it, it's all these little things that aren't really the issue. There's a schedule conflict. There's a, you want this, I want that. But what's at the bottom of our anger is not the broken dish. It's not the schedule conflict. There is something going on where our significance is being threatened. Our identity. There's something going on where our resentment for someone is bubbling up. All these other issues, and now this happens as well. Right? And and God seems to be addressing Jonah that way by saying, you won't talk about your anger and your resentment and your hatred for these people I love. So let me give you something where you'll identify your anger. And then God uses that as an object lesson to get to the real issue and address it head on. Yes, I'm angry about the vine. And then God zeroes in, verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. You care about this vine, right? Though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It's temporary. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I, Jonah, not be concerned about that great city? You care about a temporary plant that you did not create. I did. Compared to that, I care about eternal people that I did create. Jonah, seriously, it's a plant. It's just a plant, and it made you so happy. So here's Jonah who who becomes happy over the simplest little pleasure, relief from the heat, and does not care about eternal souls. That plant doesn't think, doesn't feel, it's inanimate. You only cared about it because you care about you. I care about Nineveh because I care about them. You are self-centered. God in his grace is other-centered. That's the hard issue. Nineveh has 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. Now that's a fascinating statement that, We're left to try to understand. Uh, One very good possibility is that it refers to children with having uh, not the discernment to really know right and wrong. If that's referring to some age at which child a child can really understand those issues, if it's five, six, seven, eight, uh, maybe the population of of Nineveh, it's estimated maybe 600,000, which is possible uh, as they pack people into cities then. If that's the case, it could also have some bearing on our understanding of a concept we sometimes call the age of accountability. Is there a, a point at which a child is spiritually uh, accountable to God because they can understand issues like their sin? and uh, the Savior, and the gospel, and their obligation. That's possible. I actually do believe there is some sense of an age and accountability like that, uh, where where that responsibility comes to bear, and they are accountable to God for sin uh, at some point. Now, I don't think there's a specific age for that. Uh, it, in other words, a number. I don't know how God would do that, um, it seems that those who have uh, limited mental facilities can maybe never reach that age. And uh, there's, there's a great book on this by Robert Leitner, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, called Heaven for Those Who Can't Believe. And uh, just the, it's kind of an unusual, and I wish there was more biblical evidence, but, but it's interesting how he describes the application of the cross to those who cannot actually understand those issues. One other evidence towards that is that King David, when his son, uh, infant son died in 2 Samuel 12, said, I am, said he was comforted at the time of his child's death while very uh, concerned and, and urging God to spare his son. But when the child died, he says, I cannot go to him. I mean, he cannot come back to me, but I will go to him. In other words, there was seemingly some comfort, and I can't see why there would be comfort apart from the assurance that David would be in heaven with his infant son. So, babies who die, I believe, are in heaven. Babies who are miscarried are in heaven. Even babies who die by the travesty of abortion are in heaven. And so, when you think of it, God will not be mocked or defeated even by such travesty. And God's grace wins as millions of lives will be with us in eternity. This is a different situation than what we discussed maybe as a month or so ago about the accountability of people like those in Nineveh, the accountability of those who have not heard about Christ and yet are uh, able to knowingly understand their own sin and reject God's revelation in creation. And we studied uh, Romans 1 in that regard. different That's a different issue, but this would seem to be a place where God would extend grace. And I bring that issue up because it seems that this passage does point to some kind of a... Uh, understanding of accountability. There's, however, also a possibility that the 120,000 was the entire population of Nineveh, and what he meant was that they are they were spiritually ignorant, Jonah, until you showed up and gave them my truth. And many animals. Do animals go to heaven? Simple answer: No. Okay, <laughs> I get the question from time to time because you love your pets. Um, why would he even bring it up? Was he saying, was God saying, Jonah, if anything, you should care more about animals who feel pain if I were to destroy the city than about a plant that does not. Regardless of all these details, the point he was making is simple and direct. Compared to a plant that you care about, should you not care about a great city full of people that I created and I love. Every parent that has ever tried to settle a sibling squabble is concerned that they would love one another, that they would understand something of what they are causing the other to experience. Do you understand how that makes your little brother feel or... Do you understand how you offended your sister? Because that's empathy, that's maturity to begin to understand what other people are going through. Jonah, you're an adult called prophet of mine. You really don't understand how much I love the Ninevites? Jonah, do you realize the great effort I have gone to to save these Ninevites? First of all, I sent you. To go, and you resisted, and you go running off towards Tarshish, and I have to send a, a storm. I got to send a fish to lasso you and get you back on track, and then I give you a second chance. And then I work in their hearts, and they repent, and I give them compassion, and then I've got you to deal with after all that. And I got to face. Your heart, and I got to send a vine and the worm and the wind, all because, Jonah, I love you so much that I want your heart to be gracious like mine is. And so I think God is making the point powerfully. Jonah, don't you understand that I have compassion for the world, and you need to have compassion. For the world. So, get over your selfish, resentment-filled heart. Deal with your heart and imitate my grace. And that's where the book book ends. It's done. Kind of like, oh. Do you ever read one of those books where uh, you can choose your own endings? Now, you can't really do that with Scripture because there was an ending. But in this case, we're forced to just guess, okay? My guess is that Jonah repented. And Jonah didn't end up in chapter 4, spiritually. Uh, When we studied chapter 2, I facetiously referred to Jonah 2 as Jonah 5, which there isn't one. But who but Jonah could have written this book? Who but Jonah could have written about what it felt like to be drawn down into those weeds at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and almost drowning? And who but a repentant Jonah could have penned that remarkable little hymn of praise at the end of chapter 2? Those who cling, verse 8, to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I'll make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Who but Jonah could have explained all of that? Who but a repentant Jonah would have that attitude? So here's the good news, if I'm understanding this correctly. Change is possible. When
1: we struggle struggle with grace,
0: grace, we we can be transformed by grace. grace. We We are are not stuck in our selfishness. So where are you in your journey towards having a heart like God's? Where, where's the rub? What, what, is, what does God say? You know, why are you angry?
1: To, to be transformed, it always starts with understanding
0: what God is like.
1: To understand what God is like
0: there is no better example than to search the gospels to know what Christ was like. And we find just one this is one of many examples where you find this heart of Christ. Matthew nine thirty six, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was looking at the whole city. Enemies friends,
1: undecideds.
0: And he said, man, I love these people. When we see a large crowd, is our heart like that? Or would we be very selective? Well, are they believers or not? Or do they agree with me politically or not? Or do I like the way they live their life or not? He has a heart of compassion. And And so that perfectly fits what we find in Peter's uh, uh, epistle. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If
1: you want to know what God thinks
0: about the whole wide world, it's that they would all come to repentance. Nineveh is a great Old Testament sample of that. The cross is where it happened, because God so loved the world.
1: So do we have a heart
0: like God's, and how do we get there?
1: We've got to understand something.
0: The opposite of grace, we could say, is legalism, law. But do you know the opposite of grace is also selfishness? What What prohibits prohibits us from showing grace to people people is that we are all about us. Jonah was all about Jonah. Jonah. So So that vine became everything to him. him. I love my vine. The Ninevites, they can, well, can't can't even say aloud what he was really thinking. When's When's the last time you prayed for unbelievers? Who are you praying for? Um, what relationships are you pursuing because you want to share the gospel or you want to somehow bring people in touch with the gospel? That, that's, that's in your mind as you reach out to these people. Where do you serve? How do you give that's connected to God's compassion for the world? Because it would be kind of silly to agree with God's compassion for the world and then do absolutely nothing really about it practically. We started out asking the question, well, what's going on in Jonah that he was not gracious? Well, what's going on is
1: selfishness. Grace
0: is, is lavish, generous, but it's always others-centered. And it is selfishness that will kill grace. Let me just give you some examples. That neighbor is so annoying, annoying because he or she. Anybody have a neighbor? <laughs> Does the neighbor have a dog? Does a neighbor have a truck that's parked? Whatever. And so we develop a resentment, and maybe don't we see feel so justified in our resentment that. We didn't even realize that we no longer care to show grace to them. We just end up not liking them. And they are not an object of our outreach. No plate of cookies for them. Or the thought, I deserve good things more than that person because I am more. Jonah was Jewish. And, and so there was this sense, sense of, of entitlement. entitlement. Yes, yes, of course, God, God will show me my fa- show me favor and even give me a line. vine. Nobody Everybody else can just forget it. it. Sense of entitlement. Anybody uh, noticed the news this week about some wealthy celebrities who were part of a? System of buying their their children's way into prestigious colleges or universities universities they otherwise could not get into and you understand that part of our human heart is that we feel entitled to certain certain things. I don't don't like that person person because they are so different and it makes me uncomfortable, which is basically racism racism or other similar forms of bias. bias. They just do, do things, things different. It, I don't understand, understand them. I had to call, to call Internet technical support twice this week.
1: And my, my heart just kind of went,
0: oh. when, when I heard the, the accent, accent of, the of the person who responded, I thought this is just going to be harder again. again. <laughs> so, so the question, question is, will my minor discomfort in needing to focus cause me to Resent and almost mistreat the the person on the other end of the line. God so loved the world. It makes me mad when my expectations aren't met. What makes us angry? That makes us angry. Jonah had an expectation of how this would turn out. I'm going to go there, tell them God's truth, God's going to zap them, Done. I, I can go, go home there. a hero. Tell, Tell Israel, got, <laughs> got rid of the Assyrians. Expectations were not met, and that's what makes us angry. I mean, it's, it's my, my vacation, vacation, family. You've got, got to do things, do things my way. My way. I, like I like things a certain way around the house, house, and my family, family keeps messing it up. It up. I, married, I married, you married, you married you to make me happy. I married you to make me feel good about myself, and it's just not happening. And 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 so so we become graceless graceless because of these scenarios. scenarios, But the the opposite opposite of grace is selfishness. The opposite of selfishness is is grace. How do you become become a person person of grace? grace? To be grace-oriented is to be others-centered. Philippians 2, do nothing nothing from selfish selfish ambition or conceit, conceit, but in humility humility, count others more more significant than yourselves, Which Which means, let each of you you look look not only to your own own interests, his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can we see what the other person is experiencing? What's it like to be married to me? me, Is a good question I heard about once. Looking Looking to the interests of others. others. Is Is that that is that doable? The rest of the passage. passage have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, I mean, ultimate status entitlement, glory all belonged to him, but what did he do? Emptied himself, temporarily divested himself of some of those eternal privileges, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Following Jesus is that. The opposite of grace is selfishness. The opposite of selfishness is always grace. So, where are you on that journey? What makes you angry? What is your plant? I'm finding my happiness here. Anybody threatens my happiness here, they're going to hear about it. grace aligns us with God, God Himself. And that's where we become like Him. That's Let's pray.
1: Right. Heavenly Father,
0: Father we uh, want, to want to submit to ourselves to Your Word again, that we are not, not hearers, only hearers, but doers. And, and so I pray, pray that, that uh, where Your Spirit touches us, touches today, us today, we will uh, not only consider, but we uh, Allow Allow your spirit to to transform transform us. Thank Thank you you for your word, in Jesus' name. Amen.